Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Food, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Tippin, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Justin Nystrom about his new book, Creole Italian, Sicilian Immigrants and the Shaping of New Orleans Food Culture, published in 2018 by the University of Georgia Press as part of the Southern Foodways Alliance series, Studies in Culture, People and Place, and a nominee for a James Beard Award. Justin is the Distinguished Professor of History. Uh, and director of the Documentary and Oral History Studio at Loyola University in New Orleans. Dr. Nystrom has written extensively about the history of New Orleans and the South on topics ranging from the Civil War and Reconstruction, uh, racial identity, labor history, foodways, and cultural history, uh, including the 2015 book New Orleans After the Civil War, Race, Politics, and a New Birth of Freedom from Johns Hopkins Press. Uh, He also produces documentary films, including a feature-length film titled This House of Memories. And as director of the Center of the Study of New Orleans, uh, Dr. Nystrom used to organize the Crescent City Connections interview series. Justin, welcome to the show. Great. Glad to be here. My favorite question in these interviews is usually the first one, which is, how did you get here? (laughs) What led you from the study of history more broadly to specifically New Orleans, and then to food in New Orleans, and then to Sicilians in New Orleans? Yeah, great. Well, when you said, how did I get here? I thought you were going to have me recount how my mother once told me I was the product of beef eater martinis and Vatican roulette. Um, but <laughs> but, but that, that would be maybe too much for a family program. Um, <laughs> so I, I, um, I've been writing about New Orleans now, I guess, for about 20 years. And, um, you know, New Orleans has this sort of narrative that we like to market to outsiders that a surprising number of historians also produce in their own work. Um, we emphasize certain things about our past, um, but my parents are actually Chicagoans, and so I grew up in the orbit of you know a great northern city with ethnic neighborhoods, and so maybe I think I was a little more alive to the really rich immigrant history of New Orleans, which is is not something that uh, we necessarily put front and center when writing our story. And uh, one of the immigrant groups, of course, that's really crucial in, in New Orleans after, say, 1840 into the 20th century are Italians and overwhelmingly over 90% of these come from Sicily. So New Orleans has this really strong Sicilian imprint. And I just gotten done with my first book in, in 2010. And, and I thought, you know, I'm going to do something totally different. I worked um, at Ole Miss for a year, uh, became good friends with John T. Edge up at the Southern Foodways Alliance, got interested in writing about food, um, and got interested in oral history as well, working with the filmmaker Joe York. And thought, uh, you know, I'm going to do something where I use oral history, and I'm going to write about food, and I really want to tackle this idea of immigration, and I want to look at Sicilians. and so. Um, I set out thinking I'd write a quick book. This is, you know, 2010. 
I'd write something quick. People, the things people talk about the most corner groceries, the muffaletta, all that kind of stuff. And uh, there were some detours along the way. And, and, um, before long, I found myself unpacking a much bigger book. So my work is on Southern food also and contemporary cookbooks. And so I'm always interested in how food becomes a lens through which we can kind of recover diversity in the South. So much of the discourse around Southern food uh, tends to reify this racial binary as if only two kinds of people ever lived in the South. Um, So you make a very convincing argument in the introduction that the discourse, especially about New Orleans, has been really narrowed to a single story. Um, and controlled by something vaguely defined as Creole. So maybe explain to our listeners a little bit about what you mean there. What, Who or what is understood to be Creole and, and what's at stake in that uh, wow. definition and what are we missing? Well, you did throw me straight into the briar patch. Um, I did. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, you know, Creole, There's a, at the State Museum, there's a display in Baton Rouge. Um, it's a little kiosk and it's a, a video loop that has, I think, eight or nine different experts on Creole culture describing what Creole is. And in the loop, they all give a different description, which I think um, is really quite telling. But, you know, so, so the Creole, the idea of, you know, this Francophone world, French, African, New World people, it's often, you know, ties going back to the colonial period, which again is, if we look at the history of New Orleans, is itself sort of fraught. Um, but but Creole becomes this identity, this cultural identity that we market in New Orleans quite heavily. Everything from Creole tomatoes to Creole string beans to Creole horses, um, Creole music, Creole jazz. And it, it gets, gets applied so frequently that I think what may in fact genuinely be Creole gets lost. Um, and the historians have written a lot about you know, the, the, the Francophone culture, um, of New Orleans. And so we, we really emphasize it at a time where there are big sections of New Orleans history where we've written almost nothing about. Yeah. So throughout the book, you, you kind of caution that the story of especially Sicilians in New Orleans is kind of on the verge of being lost or forgotten, partly because of that control. Um, what's the archive like for a project like this? You know, surprisingly good in a way. Um, I, I wouldn't say it's so much in danger of being lost. I think New Orleans has a really, like one of the things about the reception to this book that has been so strong locally, it's, it's been incredibly gratifying. People come to my talks and they're like, you know, my, well, this, this is what my grandfather told me about. So it's been really, really gratifying. So I think there's definitely a memory there that was waiting to be addressed. Um, in the 1970s, a fellow by the name of, of Joe Maselli was, he was a liquor importer. He'd come to New Orleans during World War II. He was from New Jersey and he met and married a local girl. And I think as an outsider, he saw how rich the Italian culture was in New Orleans. And so in the 70s, he founded the Italian-American uh, uh, Foundation here. Um, I always get the name jumbled up, but it's uh, the, our Italian-American Heritage Cultural Center. And he also was very cognizant that the immigrant generation was starting to die off. Now, 
Now, Joe was incredibly well-liked and um, a very magnetic person. So he had all this this um, social capital that he was able to go and interview these old Italians that might not have talked to anybody else. And, you know, usually when somebody gets ambition to go out and do a bunch of oral histories, they do five or six and they get busy and the project kind of lingers and, and dies. But Joe went out and, you know, interviewed maybe a hundred people in the late seventies and into the early eighties. And I think he hired a couple other people to help out with those interviews and they were on cassettes and, and they're not professional oral histories by any sense. But, you know, if you work with oral history at all, you realize that most interviews are about 45 minutes of, yeah, that's interesting. And then there'll be about three to five minutes of solid gold. And so if you think about three to five minutes of solid gold times a hundred, there's some really great stuff in this archive. And I was really fortunate to be able to work with those. Um, and then, you know, I, I did a lot of reconstructing, you know, we all use newspapers, which are a source you have to take lightly. I used a lot of advertisements. I used a lot of shipping records uh, because I, I, I did a lot more economic history than I thought I was going to do. Um, I used court cases um, and sort of thing. These were people that left us tons of letters in the archives. Uh, you had to look elsewhere. And, and then, of course, I did my own oral histories, uh, about 30 oral histories. That was my next question. Um, <laughs> what were some of those people that you got to talk to yourself? Oh, man, it was really great. Um, I, I consider myself a little bit of an anxious person. I don't know why. Uh, but before you do an interview, you're always worried that, oh, my God, this person's going to hate my guts or they're not going to want to talk to me. Uh, but people took me into their homes, into their businesses. They sat down. They shared lots of memories. And, and like, Oh man, I did this one great interview with these two women who were both 89 years old. And so like interviewing two women who are 89 is a special challenge. They were both affiliated with the Udo Teramina company that becomes Progresso Foods, which is founded in New Orleans. Uh, one was Adele Chopin Udo, uh, whose father started FTD Florists. And the other was Rosemary uh, Udo Testa. and um, she was, you know, in the family as well. And they were lifelong friends. And it was just like magical. They, we took, it was three hours long. They took a break in the middle. Rosemary made me eggplant Parmesan. It was, it was life-changingly good. Um, <laughs> and, and her daughter was just off camera, you know, mama, you know, don't forget to tell them about <laughs> such and such. It, 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 you know, so I had interviews like that. I, you know, I, I'd interview some wise guys like, you know, Nick Logedy, who, you know, there'd be a moment, hey, you got to shut the camera off. I got to tell you something, you know. <laughs> uh, so stuff like that, it was, it was great. My, my, who I became very good friends with, the restaurateur Joe Segreto, who had been Louis Prima's road manager, who had worked with Carlos Marcello and Joe Marcello and you know, was in that world and, and, and really ran and, and a number of really important restaurants was also just incredibly knowledgeable about his history, the history of Sicilians in New Orleans and very well read and, and could draw connections to the food in a way that was quite compelling. So I felt very enriched by the experience. 
Yeah, well, and the book shows it. I think that that careful detail. There's so much uh, rich language. I could definitely see the the evidence of those uh, oral histories and those interviews in the way that people speak to you. That's great. Um, your book seems to me at least to be partly devoted to my favorite scheme, which is debunking some flimflam. Um, <laughs> what are some of the stereotypes or those common narratives about New Orleans or about Sicilians in New Orleans that you really set out to correct or to complicate with this book? Yeah, well, one of the one of the things that I really really struggled with for a while because the story that we hear about Sicilian New Orleans the most that's historical in nature, of course, is the 1891 lynching of Sicilian immigrants after the assassination, after their acquittal of the assassination of Chief Hennessy. And the the problem with this incident is that it, it distills Sicilian immigrants into being poor and either criminals or victims. Um, and and it, it's a really flat portrait of what Sicilian immigration to New Orleans looks like. And so I, I, I was, I'd set out, I'm like, I'm not even going to cover this. But of course, you write a book about Sicilian New Orleans, you can't actually not mention anything about this incident. And it became an opportunity to, to talk about why that incident in itself had been so mischaracterized over time. So, you know, Sicilians, the first Sicilians who come to New Orleans are actually fairly substantial merchants, you know, on the uh, citrus trade, which I don't know if we'll talk about that. Um, But, but then, you know, the Ustasi, the restaurateurs, I mean, Commander's Palace, one of the best known restaurants in New Orleans was founded by an immigrant from Ustica by the name of of, uh, Emil Camarda, who changed his name to Commander. Uh, when he got here in in the 1860s and ultimately a few decades later founds Commander's Palace. Yeah, these were things that I did not know about. Uh, Never heard of David Hennessy, never heard, right? I knew Commander's Palace, but had no way to know that it was connected to this history. So thank you for that. Um, So you started to talk a little bit about why New Orleans, what attracts the first wave of Sicilians to migrate to New Orleans, um, and then maybe what kind of welcome they received. You really described the the Ellis Island equivalent uh, of New Orleans in some detail. So what would it have been like for those early arrivals? Well, the the early arrivals are showing up on their own ships. Um, So Sicily in the 19th century is the world's leading producer of lemons. And we think, well, lemons. Lemons are actually pretty important in the 19th century. Uh, we don't know how to synthesize citric acid until World War One. It's the primary source of that. Citric acid's important in canning. Lemons are in almost every beverage. If you open a 19th century cookbook to the beverage page, you know it starts juice, a dozen and a half lemons. Um, and there's no California citrus industry, right? There's no Florida citrus industry at this time. Uh, the Sicily lemon had been cultivated for a thousand years, and it's this perfect fruit in the age of sale because it can take a hundred days to get from Palermo to New Orleans. But the lemon not only withstands that voyage, it actually improves on it. And so Sicily lemons are this really important commodity coming into New Orleans starting in the late 1830s. We start to see Sicilian merchants uh, at the same time it's coming into New York. Um, 
maybe just a tiny bit earlier into there's earlier evidence for it coming into New York. Let's say, I think it's coming into both places probably around the same time um, for the same reasons. And these are wealthy citrus merchants who ultimately diversify into importing different things. Um, You know, Sicily lemons as late as 1880 were the third largest commodity imported at the port of New Orleans. Uh, This is before tropical fruit. Uh, it's it's a it's a big deal, and these Sicily citrus merchants ultimately diversify uh, into tropical fruit. But before they can do so, they have to modernize their fleet from sailing vessels because bananas are not as forgiving. And so they, uh, in starting in the late 1870s and early 1880s, modernized to to steam uh, big steel. Uh, steam-driven ships with with screw propellers that are very fast that can make the Palermo run to New Orleans in 29 days pretty regularly. I mean, a, a container ship coming from Palermo to New Orleans today, and container ships people don't realize are, are actually quite fast. Um, only takes it takes about 20 days still. So this is not very modern, and when you can make it in 29 days, you can start bringing people, and this is when we start to see the big influx of Sicilian migrants to New York, to New Orleans, Baltimore, Philadelphia, all the places that we see Sicilians in America today. Um, when they get here, of course, New Orleans is a great place to come. And, and I hate to f- sort of fuel the image of New Orleans as a lawless town, although it is an image sometimes deserved. Um, if you were a criminal or you were physically unfit, New Orleans was probably the best place you could choose to come because there, there is no Ellis Island in New Orleans. There's, the inspection consists of a ship with maybe 1,300 immigrants standing off the Mississippi River levee uh, today where you know the riverfront park is, but this would have been in 1900 a working waterfront. And a boat with four doctors from the public health service would go out, uh, the Navy hospital here, the Marine hospital actually, and make an inspection, if you will, of 1,300 immigrants in, a, in the course of a, a few hours. And then the boat would touch, the gangplank would go down, and they would melt into the French Quarter, uh, which is kind of a dramatic first day in America, I think. Yeah. The other kind of part of that chapter, the the lemons and the bananas seem to represent this ascendancy of uh, Sicilian import magnates. Uh, but the subtitle of that chapter also includes sugarcane. Right. So how does that maybe represent the bifurcation of the class of Sicilian immigrants? Right, right. Totally. Because so you have these wealthy Sicilian merchants who are bringing in poor Sicilian peasants uh, and, and the wealthier older, more established Sicilian community in New Orleans, which had, you know, had, had its roots in the 1830s, were kind of worried in a way about these much more numerous peasants coming in because like the older group had become Americanized. They, you know, were part of the system. Um, but what they, they were responsible for this immigration because they, they had acted as labor agents um, the cane fields in the 1880s and 90s are in a state of chaos, uh, labor chaos. Um, African-American workers 
are very justly protesting against just deplorable working conditions. Um, so naturally, instead of ameliorating these deplorable working conditions and paying a fair wage, the sugar growers say, well, gosh, maybe we can find people who are even poorer and more destitute to come work in the fields and they'll be content. Um, and so they turn to these labor agents to recruit Sicilian peasants who come uh, to work in the cane fields. Now, there's a there's a lore and a mythology of the Sicilian cane worker about working for a dollar a day and saving the money and, um, you know, really becoming, you know, wealthy over time. And um, the truth is, is they did this for a while and realized just exactly what the African-American workers realized, that it was a total raw deal. You know, and they were never going to get by doing it. But what happens is it's so cheap to go back and forth between Sicily because these steamers are just so efficient that you have workers who will come and cut cane for a season and then go back to Sicily. And over time, they realize that they can find other work when they come back and they find other work cutting lumber and working in turpentine camps or or digging levees, all the real hard stuff, you know, or, you know, working in some laboring job in, in New Orleans itself. And they start bringing their families. And it's this inexpensive and regular arrival of the citrus fleet that makes it possible for these people to show up and, and build a new life in, in Louisiana. I think most people today probably imagine New Orleans as a dining destination, um, and it's really hard to imagine any major city before restaurant culture. Uh, but you describe in the next chapter about how Sicilian immigrants really shaped the future of New Orleans restaurants uh, through oyster houses. Um, so maybe tell us a little bit about that story. Where did people eat in New Orleans before the modern restaurant, and, and what, what part did oyster houses play? Yeah, Carrie, as you know, I mean, the literature of early restaurants is kind of, um, to me, something that's ripe for some really new, great research, because mm -hmm. we don't really, like, um, there there tends to be this focus on sort of the grand old restaurants like Delmonico's or, or you know, Antoine's here in New Orleans, but, um, you know, who's to say an oyster saloon really isn't a restaurant, you know, and, mm -hmm. and, what what happens in New Orleans is that oysters are so crucial to our foodstuffs. And of course they become important everywhere in the 19th century once steam. Uh, we have a steam market and an ice market. Uh, they can be sent, you know, pretty much anywhere a boat can go. Uh, but the Sicilians aren't oystermen per se. They don't actually do a lot of oyster fishing. They buy the oysters and they mm -hmm. operate saloons where oysters are sold. And these, a lot of these oyster saloons starting in the 1830s and 1840s evolve into what I would consider some of the earliest regular restaurants in New Orleans where, you know, they're advertising in the early 1850s that they're selling meals in the New York style. You know, to me, that's a restaurant. They have ladies dining rooms. Again, another kind of mark of what we would consider a restaurant. Um, they, they get there um, originally by catering. So so to me, an, another area that I think we need to explore as historians is the role that catering plays in, in developing restaurants. And 
you know, the idea of carryouts makes perfect sense when you think, well, in our day of Uber Eats, <laughs> that that in in 1820, if you lived in a city, it made perfect sense to get carryouts because you didn't have to light a fire or go to a well to get water. Uh, you're, you might not even have a kitchen. So um, I think Sicilians are definitely enter into this. Again, it's a hustling, difficult work that attracts immigrants, you know, shucking oysters, you know, the same way that food businesses attract immigrants today. You, you don't have to have the language. Food is a, is a language of itself that everybody understands. And, um, you know, they mature over time and, and really build some quite remarkable restaurants from, from quite humble beginnings. And I think even in what we've discussed so far, uh, and then more coming up um, soon, you talk a lot about like the stratification of that Sicilian immigrant class. So there's not one story of Sicilian immigrants either, but there's a a lot of stratification in how and that the food um, importation and then the food selling businesses kind of increase that stratification. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things I always tell people when I talk about the the Hennessy lynching is, you know, there's there's this image of the poor Sicilian criminal element living in the French Quarter, which is true. You know, there there is this sort of, uh, you know, these guys who work along the riverfront. Being a longshoreman's a tough job. These are tough guys, you know. But at the same time, you have John Estrato, who has this magnificent hotel at West End, which is on the lake, uh, where where the New Basin Canal empties into the lake, which is a resort area. And it's where the Southern Yacht Club is located. And Southern Yacht Club remains today a very exclusive organization. Uh, one of the, I think it's the oldest continuing, continu- continuously operating yacht club in America. And John Estrato not only is a member, uh, this Sicilian is not only a member of the Yacht Club, he sponsors a trophy in one of its annual regattas. So, you know, and that's in 1890. Yeah, the next chapter, um, Blood and Macaroni, um, seems connected to me to this part of the conversation um, where you're kind of complicating that story of organized crime, again, by pointing out that there's a class of established Italians who have prospered under the American system and kind of benefit from maintaining a certain image. Um, and the macaroni industry seemed a lot like lemons and sugar uh, to kind of demonstrate that wide range of experiences felt by one community. So what's the story of manufacturing macaroni um, and the alleged black hand? So when I when I put together that chapter, Blood and Macaroni, I was really wanting to talk about the dichotomy between the really wealthy Sicilians who had made their a life for themselves in the French Quarter and the threat that they felt from poor Sicilian immigrants who had this reputation as being criminals and this sort of desire to Americanize these immigrants before they caused any real trouble. And so that we're, you know, we're talking about the time period, late 1890s, getting into uh, right up onto the eve of prohibition, and of course, prohibition happens, and then the idea of, of mafia changes entirely. So we're talking about this early area when we're we're thinking like this idea of the black hand. And one of the things I take on is, you know, there's there's a lot of writing about mafia on the internet, and a lot of it's really 
Well, it's really unsupported. I mean, the nature of writing about organized crime is is that, you know, it's super hard to document. And if you look at stuff that's written about organized crime, it usually all traces back to like one completely unsupported source. So uh, what I'm seeing is, you know, Anglo newspapers written by white Protestants talking about mafia activity in New Orleans. But really what we're talking about here is really kind of a garden variety criminal activity in the French Quarter. And it's it's making the wealthy Sicilian businessmen just as nervous as anybody else, maybe more nervous. Uh, you know, they're they're starting to and starting around the eighteen nineties, they're starting to build all these really big macaroni factories in the French Quarter. In nineteen oh five there are eight large macaroni manufacturers. Uh, the descendant of one is still actually in business, luxury pasta, which is sold all over the country. I think it's made in St. Louis and it's, I believe, owned by ConAgra. That actually originates, the people who originate that company work at a factory in the French Quarter and learn how to make pasta there in 1903. So, uh, you you have this this conflict of 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 street criminals who are using tactics of extortion to prey on wealthier Sicilians. Now this worked in Sicily because Sicily was this lawless place after Italian unification, where you know the Sicilian mafia really comes out of the wars for Italian unification because there's so much disorder. Uh, the mafia in places like Palermo and Monreale emerge to kind of give structure to life and they become these bosses. Now, there will be a mafia in America, in New Orleans, in the 20s. But in the teens, what you have are these people who may have left some little village in rural Sicily who were petty criminals there and they use the same tactics like, you know, if you don't give me $5,000, I'm going to, you know, murder your child, which happens, right? Famously, the Lamana murder, which is broken. And, and so like this horrible crime that happens uh, with the murdering of the Lamana child, who's the son of a, a very popular undertaker in New Orleans, uh, Peter Lamana, really galvanizes the big businessmen in the Sicilian community to get together and have this vigilance league. Uh, so when there's this other shooting at this house called the Beauregard Kai's house, uh, named because General Beauregard, right? We tell only certain stories about our past. Beauregard rented there for 18 months after the Civil War, hence the name. Uh, but the Giacona family, the, the house is really owned by Italians most of its life. Um, the Giacono family is a wine importing family, and there's a group of these criminals trying to extort them like they had extorted uh, the others. Well, the, the businessmen led by the Giacono family rally together and fight against it, and they hunt down the criminals who do this. Uh, I've become, in the meanwhile, good friends with the descendant of the Giacono family, a fellow by the name of Corrado Giacono III, who invented the Mardi Gras Cup actually. If you go on Bourbon Street and have a hand grenade, his company makes that cup. So he, on the internet, he's portrayed as the godfather of the 
or his his grandfather great grandfather portrayed as the leaders of the original New Orleans mafia, which is complete nonsense. These were actually very conservative businessmen who were trying to use vigilante justice very much like the white uptown elites used against the people who had supposedly murdered Chief Hennessy. This was old-fashioned New Orleans vigilante justice, and they were applauded by the uptown elites of New Orleans for doing this. It's later when we start to see the emergence of people like Silver Dollar Sam Corallo in the 1920s and 30s that a real mafia built around the enormous money to be made in alcohol, illegal alcohol, starts to emerge. But in this this teens period, it's really about the tension between the rich Sicilians and the poor ones and what it means to be American. Yeah. So leading into that 1920s era that you've just brought up, uh, I think most people, again, think of New Orleans now as a place for nightlife and jazz clubs. But as you point out, again, Sicilians were there at the beginning of that, too. Um, So at the same time that Italian food is growing in popularity as a a hip new food that's just been discovered, um, (laughs) the country's also in the throes of prohibition, uh, which coincides with the story of organized crime as well. So how did prohibition change the landscape of the New Orleans restaurant and club culture, and how did Italians experience this major cultural shift? Yeah, and and I think this is a story that's not necessarily unique to New Orleans, but it definitely unfolds in New Orleans. And I think if you looked at Italian restaurants in New York or Philadelphia or Chicago, you would see some of the similar patterns. Um, But what happens, of course, is Italian food gets discovered, if you will, in in the towards the end of the first decade of the 20th century. It's the hot new thing to go do, to go to get a spaghetti house because the Sicilians who had restaurants in 19th century New Orleans, uh, these were places we would think of as seafood restaurants. They were, or they, they served Creole food or, you know, sort of traditional French language menu um, or they, you know, they served oysters and pompano and things like that. It's not until 1905, 1908, that we start to see spaghetti becoming popular. And as you get into the teens, it becomes extremely popular. Tourists are coming from, you know, all over the South because really New Orleans is the only place with a, with a really big Italian community. So tourists are coming to New Orleans in 1913 when Pascal's Manali, which is, which is still in business, uh, they're going to have the real Italian spaghetti at Pascal's Manali, and they're going to see the slave auction block at the St. Louis Hotel, and they're going to go see the old U.S. Mint. Like this is a checklist of things to do when you're in you're in New Orleans is to have Italian food. Um, but as we know, prohibition emerges right as the spaghetti house is becoming really mainstream. By mainstream, the ladies' auxiliary is going to go have its luncheon at a spaghetti place by 1920. Uh, But, you know, anybody who knows anything about the restaurant business knows that alcohol sales are pretty important and that restaurants were caught in a bind when it came to prohibition because unless they were like a lunch house where alcohol wasn't a really important part of their their business, um, you know, their customers wanted alcohol. And, um, you know, systems of bootlegging and, 
uh, you know, the the rise of organized crime around around um, bootlegging is something documented well, certainly by others. There's the really great book um, uh, that the author's name escapes me right now, but it's Jews and Booze, fantastic book about Jewish immigrants and their role in prohibition uh, in New York. Uh, was really influential in the way I thought about this. Um, you know, so you have restaurants and, and, and they're run by Sicilians. And what happens at the same time, of course, is jazz is becoming very popular. We think about New Orleans, uh, the single most important cultural contribution New Orleans makes to the world. Um, as a guy who writes about food is jazz. I mean, it's, it's very easily jazz. Um, uh, by a big margin. And and so these Sicilian restaurateurs are also playing host to jazz musicians, many of whom are, some are white, some are uh, people of color, and they're playing jazz, they're eating spaghetti, and they're serving illegal booze all in the same place, starting to do this on Bourbon Street around 1920. Um, we start to see spaghetti house after spaghetti house open up. Some of them survive, some of them don't. Um, I argue that really in a lot of ways, spaghetti puts Sicilians in a place to be involved in the bootlegging business to the degree that they are also puts them in a place to be involved in the jazz business, the show business part of, of running a restaurant to the degree they are. It's, one of those accidents of history, if Irish immigrants had started coming in in large numbers in the 1890s, these would have been Irish speakeasies serving, I don't know, fish and chips, which of course is actually Italian, but I, you know what I mean? Maybe they'd be serving uh, shepherd's pie. You know, that doesn't go so well with jazz. But anyway, um, it's the Sicilians who are creating these clubs on Bourbon Street and, and they survive. One one of my favorite ones is actually a, a Mexican themed nightclub called La Lune. But in 1918, it's, it's, it's at 800 Bourbon Street and today it's a gay dance club. But in 1918, it was the Panzeca grocery. It was a little Italian grocery and the son, Johnny Panzeca decided that he would get into the booze business because there was a lot of money to be made. And he actually built like a 1500 gallon distillery behind it and, you know, curbside delivery of liquor. They, I mean, they printed their own bottles and um, when, when prohibition was over, he was one of the first places to get a liquor license and they opened La Lune in 1934 and it's in business until the early 60s when it becomes the site of Pete Fountain's first club. That's great. Well, so the next chapter then kind of focuses on how the city has changed physically. So part of that prohibition story is about like the centers of where uh, those clubs would be. Uh, But in the next chapter, you really focus about the, the Sicilian French Quarter, that particular enclave of Sicilian homes and businesses um, and you write really beautifully in the opening of that chapter that um, if there's a ghost of the city's Sicilian past, it surely haunts the streets of the lower French Quarter. Uh, impressions of the immigrant century remain visible on the landscape if you know where to look. Um, so maybe describe yeah. this neighborhood at its height and then how it might look today. 
Yeah, if there's if there's a gravitational center, it's in the French Quarter at the intersection of Saint Philip and Charters. Uh, Charters being the local pronunciation for those of you touring France right now, you would pronounce Chart. Um, so so Saint Philip becomes really the 500 and 600 block. I mean, in 1920, it's almost a hundred percent Sicilian, um, and and so a lot of the families that go on to do, you know, amazing things uh, like the Udo Terramina family who make progressive foods and, you know, all the pasta companies and, and um, you know, club owners, Silver Dollar Sam looks lives on the 600 block of St. Philip. Uh, Peter Lamana, uh, is, his son's abducted from the intersection of St. Philip and Royal. Um, so, you know, you have this really hub of Sicilian New Orleans and, you know, today up on, on the up, up St. Philip street, you have Matassa's grocery, which has been there, you know, Cosimo Matassa, who I don't write about in the book, but who recorded, you know, little Richard and Dr. John and Fats Domino and Dave Bartholomew, all these amazing greats of R&B was related to this little Sicilian grocery that's still there. And you can walk into and buy a cold drink. Um, and it's really quite palpable. King Creole filmed in 1958, I believe, at there's a school on St. Philip Street. Today it's the, um, I believe it's the Homer Plessy Charter School, but it's where they filmed King Creole. And across the street was a delicatessen by the name of Montalbano's, where, you know, there's this question of who invented the muffaletta sandwich. Well, I don't really actually care about it. It's a, it's a historical process of the 19 teens, but uh, Biggio Montalbano sold this really great muffaletta and it's where outsiders filming Creole in the 1950s are like, Hey, what's this? And it's really where the muffaletta sandwich kind of gets onto the stage. You know, it gets onto the menu because the places that sold it didn't even have menus, you know? Um, where, where outsiders learn about this really Italian culture. Uh, and, and today, you know, this is the heart of what we would call kind of the gay French Quarter, St. Philip, St. Anne, Ursulines. And there's this really interesting changeover that occurs in the 1950s where you have these Sicilians. And a lot of these Sicilians are people who descended from that poor group of people who came in. And they were always kind of, you know, they were considered other, if you will. They weren't 100% accepted into mainstream society. And along came this other group, these mostly gay men, who also weren't accepted into mainstream society. And you have the really interesting dynamic of these really pretty conservative Catholic Sicilian men, all very, still very conservative, renting uh, their places to gay men, knowingly knowing that they're this is going to be a what we've been called a cross-dressing bar at the time, or um, a gay bar, and it is a really interesting shift over when when the Sicilians themselves start moving out to Lakeview, suburban areas, Jefferson Parish, um, and and well Gentilly first, and and the 1930s, um, but they still own all that property. Right. Uh, a good Sicilian friend of mine says it's really hard to get a piece of real estate away from the Sicilian. Uh, maybe that's a characterization, but uh, the property records don't lie. 
that part of the quarter is still very much in some of those same old family hands. Yeah, so you've already kind of talked about how grocery stores are really important to that neighborhood, but then you devote an entire chapter to more about those family grocery stores. So what do the grocery stores themselves contribute to the story of New Orleans food um, and what's been their legacy into the present? Well, you know, it's really dramatic, I think. It's um, running a corner grocery. Um, it, you know, if, you, if you've been to New Orleans and you drive around its neighborhoods, you see these, uh, uh, you know, little corner buildings with the the corner sawed off on a 45 degree angle with a little door. And there was a time where you were never a few blocks away from a corner grocery and they were important meeting places. And again, this is one of those sort of trajectories of history. The grocers in new Orleans in the 1870s and sixties were mostly Germans and, you know, some of their grocery stores continue on, but when the Sicilians start coming in, like the grocery is, the gross grocery is aspirational in the Sicilian ascent to becoming American. So if you come to America, you might first have a cart that you push around in the streets and you pedal bananas or assorted fruits, or maybe you sharpen knives. And then maybe you'll get a stall in one of the city's 27 public markets. Maybe you're a butcher or something like that. But what you really want is ultimately enough capital to open your own corner grocery. And I don't know how many families I talked to either through oral history or just, you know, people even after the book came out, you know, my, my grandparents had a corner grocery store and they sent very much like the Vonderhaar grocery uh, or not the Vonderhaar grocery, but the, um, the Bologna grocery where, you know, they sent my, my father to medical school. You know, and and then, you know, the corner grocery becomes obsolete over time. And these old couples, you know, they shutter the grocery. New Orleans changes a lot. Supermarkets take over. And nobody, you know, there are a handful of small corner groceries like Matassas in the quarter, like Terra Nova's up on Esplanade, who've learned to recast their business for the modern age and and thrive uh, based on service and connection with the community and in the case of Terra Nova, is having really amazing meat products that they make. Um, but most groceries close and, you know, they're forgotten, but they're on the landscape. But it's very difficult to talk to a descendant of a Sicilian family from New Orleans and not come up with a conversation about how at some point in that family's history, they had a Sicilian grocery, a corner grocery. So the last chapter covers the myths and realities of Italian restaurants since 1945. And the myth, of course, it seems to be, again, that hard-to-escape story of mafia connections. Um, And while there's possibly too many restaurants to name in the time that we have left, maybe pick one or two that you think are representative of the era. For the restaurants that have stayed um, into the present, what maybe accounts for that longevity? Um, and for those that no longer exist, what do you think accounts for their disappearance? Well, I mean, I, I opened that chapter talking about two New Orleans institutions that are uniquely New Orleans, but in very different ways. One is, of course, Mosca's on the West Bank, which has all these sort of mafia lore surrounding it, which is not entirely untrue, but dates from a time before it was Mosca's. Um, and then Pascal's Manali uptown, which is uh, actually just recently changed hands. 
uh, after a very long period of time, recently, like in the last three months, a uh, big surprise uh, to, to many people. And Mosca's survives, I think, I don't, like it's very good in Mosca's, if you've been there recently, they're very much on their A game right now. It's very enjoyable, but like they take cash, you know, that's it. That's just not done anywhere anymore today. Uh, your babysitter can take a credit card now. So uh, that's really, they do it on purpose. You know, it's it's part of their identity. And you couldn't do that anywhere else. I, I mean, I think Mosca's is really good, but I think it would go out of business in three months in Atlanta, you know, under a different name. If it was Mosca's like, oh, well, you know, this is, this is the legit thing. Maybe it would survive. But if you took everything that they did and did it in Atlanta, as good as it is, it's not a, it's not a way of dining that non-New Orleanians would really embrace necessarily. And then the other, you know, Manali is, is, is good. It's very consistent. It's the tradition of going there. Manali's is a place to be seen. I go there once a month with a group of guys that I'm by far the youngest. And, you know, we're always seen. We're always seated. We have a table. It's an institution. Um, and, Again, uh, you know, cities have restaurants like that, but the old school Creole Italian, but most of them haven't survived. Um, there are a lot of new Creole Italian restaurants opening up lately, and I think there's a nostalgia for this sort of older, you know, 100 item menu Creole Italian restaurant. We see them opening up on the North Shore, which is kind of like the nice suburbs of New Orleans. Uh, we see them opening in, in Metairie and Jefferson Parish, too, in the suburbs where a lot of the descendants. And I think a lot of New Orleans here in 2020 of Sicilian descent are trying to reconnect with something that their parents really enjoyed in the 1970s and 80s, places like Elmo Plantation, which closed, which was a very nice restaurant, or Sclafani's, which was this institution, this huge restaurant uh, that was, was an early restaurant to move out to the suburbs in 1958 but it started on the edge of the French quarter. Um, and so we see a lot of those new ones opening up, but what happened to most of them in the 1980s is, you know, restaurants changed. People didn't want a white tablecloth for a family dining experience. They didn't care about silver plate. They didn't want, you know, a pasta dish in red sauce available to them with veal 18 different ways. Um, the, the modern American bistro had come in. These Sicilian restaurants were very slow to navigate the whole idea of a celebrity chef. This was a time period when the maitre d' mattered. You went in, you talked to Mr. Tony at the door. He got you tickets to the boxing match. He got you a nice table. He might even have a rose for your wife on your anniversary. That was kind of the experience. Now people wanted to go in. They wanted to wear jeans. They wanted to have a table that was just bare wood. And they wanted Thai food <laughs> you know, or stuff like that. And, 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 and so a lot of these restaurants, they, they, didn't, they took cash. They were slow to adopt cards. They didn't understand point-of-sale systems. They didn't modernize at all. And they died one after one. So if you were going to direct a tourist to New Orleans to kind of find the Sicilian uh, heritage or to go to a particular place, where would you send them? 
you know, it's got a rap as a tourist trap, but Central Grocery is the real thing. Um, you, you know, it, it's it's not as old as they claim, and people can read about that in the book. And I mean, I know the Tusa family; they're they're good people. Uh, it's a difficult business to run. It, it's a little bit of a museum of an artifact. Everybody goes there to get the muffaletta sandwich. It's a very good sandwich. Um, that they they'll have to wait in line, but I they're waiting in line for something that's actually really <laughs> good. You know, it's 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 not like. You know, like some tourist traps, you're like, wow, this was expensive. And it, yeah, it wasn't really all that great. Central Grocery is the last holdout of a time from when all of Decatur Street were these mercantile establishments dealing in food and or things having to do with the river, you know, so ship chandleries. But there were all these import and export houses. And so you can walk around Central Grocery and imagine like a corner grocer coming in there and haggling with the Tusas about buying a whole wheel of Parmesan cheese to tote back to his corner grocery to sell a wedge at a time. Or a family coming in there who has a grocery buying 10 cases of pasta to sell at their grocery store. They were a wholesaler in groceries really originally. The muffaletta is what saved them, right? When everything started to change in the 70s, they became a tourist destination. But there's something, like I've asked Sicilian people, descended people in New Orleans, the same question. And they tell me, you know, I go to Central Grocery. It's, it's, it's a great thing when you can send tourists to something kind of organically that ticks all the boxes for the tourism, the sort of you know, things that people want, but at the same time, locals are still doing it or people who have moved away from New Orleans, you know, what? I'm going to go into Central Grocery and buy a pint of olive salad. You know, it, it's, it's very moving. To, it's, it's, it's like returning to, uh, you know, some cathedral <laughs> for Italian food. And, and, and so I, I think that's really good, but you know, the, the Napoleon house, which is owned by Ralph Brennan today, but was run by the impostados for a century is still very much like the impostados transformed it in the 1970s. You know, I love Salamaria impostado. It may actually be a a little smoother of an operation. The food's identical. Uh, It's just a testament to how good of a restaurateur Ralph Brennan is. He's an incredibly modern manager um, and really knows his business. Uh, But, you know, you can go and if you buy the muffaletta at, Napoleon House, uh, you can sit there listening to the opera that Sal and Maria's father played in the 1940s. Uh, it's on a CD <laughs> instead of a Victrola anymore, but it's 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 the same music, and it's really like if you know what you're listening to, go there on a hot August day at four o'clock in the afternoon when it's like 105 outside, and sit in that dark dining room with an ice cold Abita Amber. And have uh, muffaletta, which they serve hot, which is controversial for some people. But that muffaletta is a descendant, a direct descendant of the muffaletta sold uh, by Biggio Montalbano to the makers of King Creole on St. Philip Street because they hired his son to design the sandwich and make the olive salad when they started serving them in the 70s. So I would recommend those two places. That's amazing. Uh, last question. What project are you working on next? 
I'm working on a couple of different things right now. I'm actually writing a book about eight food commodities that define New Orleans uh, because nobody's really written about the port. And I thought this was a sexy way to write about the port (laughs) and tell the history of New Orleans. I'm also really interested. I've gotten very interested in English foodways. And so um, I'm really interested in the way that the English use food to construct their identity, particularly in our own time in the age of Brexit, where you have this tension between sort of the, the European glance, uh, you know, which has, there's all these sort of splits that in British culture over this issue, but then like the embrace of British food is something that cuts across this divide in a way that I think is really interesting. So I'm, I'm, that's a little more longer term that I'm, I'm working on that right now. That's great. Eight foods that shape New Orleans. That's, I mean, I already know that that's going to be a pretty great title. People are going to love it. I'm going to buy it. Don't worry about it. Yes. All right. (laughs) So today we've been talking to Justin Nystrom about his new book, Creole Italian, Sicilian Immigrants and the Shaping of New Orleans Food Culture, published in 2018 by the University of Georgia Press and a James Beard Award nominee. You can find Justin on Twitter at Justin Nystrom. Uh, Justin, thank you so much for taking your time to talk with me today. I really appreciate it. Carrie, it was a pleasure. <laughs>